You are now tuned into Let's Talk About It. Real issues, real talk for real people. On 880 The Biz. Welcome, welcome, world. Welcome, America. Welcome, South Florida, to another episode of Let's Talk About It. My name is Sabash Katil. I'm your host today, and to my right is... Mara Leventhal. People, there's a lot of news we have for you today. There's some big developments for the show that we have for you that we're going to save for the end of the show. But today's show is going to be crazy, intense, and full of stuff. I want to hear a song real quick to line us up to the show. You might remember this song. This is our own theme song. Yeah. So, people, on the show today, we're going to talk about a few things. First of all, Tomas Pendle is about to call us in like one minute. Uh, what's he going to be talking about? Tomas is going to be telling us a little bit about why immigrant activists took over Mario Diaz-Blart's office on Friday and have been fasting for four days in front of a detention center. He's going to talk to us about that real quick. Also, we're going to be joined in the studio, not in the studio, we're going to be joined on the phone by artist Nobody, the me that nobody knows. That's his full name. That's his artist name. He was caught tagging a billboard of LeBron James with the words R.I.P. Rifa. You will know that Rifa uh, refers to Israel Rifa Hernandez, who was tased to death by the Miami Beach Police Department a couple weeks ago or so. Now, also, we will be joined, speaking of the case of Israel Hernandez, by two doctors, one a cardiologist, one a neurologist. We're going to have a little conversation on our show about this thing called excited delirium. What's excited delirium? Excited delirium is this condition that a lot of people who are in police custody just happen to have, at least to their deaths. So I want to know if excited delirium is a real thing or if it's a fake thing. That's what I want to know. I want to keep an open mind for this segment. I'm going to keep an open mind. And then finally on the show, if you live in Miami, you will know that Miami floods all the time. It was flooded on on my way into the studio. No, for real. It it floods all the time. And... And we're going to find out what that has to do with urban development and ur- urban boundaries and urban development. So we're going to talk about that in a little bit. So first we have Tomas on the air. Tomas, are you there? Yes, I am. Hello. So Tomas, do me a favor. You've got a couple minutes. So uh, just tell me real quick, why are activists like yourself, why did they take over Mario Diaz-Blart's office, a representative in South Florida, uh, out of the Doral area? Why did you take over Mario Diaz-Blart's office, and why have you been fasting in front of a detention center for four days? Look, it's actually very simple. It's because the people of Miami, are already, and of South Florida in general, are very tired already of just hearing excuses and excuses and just uh, like having our uh, congressmen support us in quotations, but not show any action for it. And by support yes. us, you mean related to immigration reform, correct? Yes, of course. Uh, so, for example, Mario Diaz-Balar, why did we take over his office? Mario Diaz-Balar has always supported an immigration reform. He's always supported immigrants, or so he says. But he just says these things. He doesn't show it. He might show up to O'Reilly here and there. He might say it on TV. But he has not, in fact, done any concrete action that shows us that he supports us. He has not introduced this mythical bill of the Gang of Eight, which was then the Gang of Seven, which was then the Gang of Five, 
in the House uh, doesn't exist. I mean, this bill, yes, they talk about it. They say they've been working on it for five years. But in reality, they never place a bill on the floor. It's never been voted on. People haven't seen it. And, and it must be frustrating goes, that there's the mm-hmm. government is shut down right now, but deportations haven't shut down, right? So, mm-hmm. and, and so if you had to tell our listeners one thing, what would that be? What, what can folks do if they want to get involved? If they want to get involved, I'll tell you right now what you need to do. In front of the Broward Transitional Center, we are camping out, uh, but we are actually ending the fast today. And what we're going to do, pending on the extension of our permit from the city of Deerfield Beach that we're asking for, that the GEO group, the owners of the Broward Transitional Center, need to approve for us to stay here, we are going to extend this occupation of the front part of the detention center for another week or two. But we want the community to come see us. We want them to join us. We want them to be here so they can share in this experience. They can show the support for the people who are in the detention center who are getting separated from the families and also for them to learn from us what uh, all the immigration reform is about, whether they're people who are going through it, they're undocumented, whether they're people who know about it, but they're citizens, whether they're people who don't have any idea about what it is about, they can come here and we'll be having sessions, we'll be having um, chanting, we'll be having uh, music, uh, like related to reform, and we want to make this a community space. Because this is not all the dreamers and the organizations that are putting together anymore. This is all the community who has given us huge support throughout this weekend. Right. And Tomas, is there a website they can go to, or a Twitter handle or anything, something like that? Yes. As of tomorrow, we will update the SWER website. It's swer.org, swer.org. And we'll have all the information on there. We'll have where to go. We'll have the address. We'll keep you updated on whether we get extended by Geo Group or not and by Deerfield Beach. Right. Right. One. Uh, so I also to give you an update. Uh, I just got the, the address. We're at 3900 Powerline Road in Deerfield Beach. In well, it's like Pompano Beach. I mean, kind of something. It's all right. Um, we'll put a link to it up on our website. Don't worry about it. Okay. Perfect. Th- Tomas Pendloff, students working for Equal Rights. Thank you so much for your thoughts. Let's keep talking about it. Good mm-hmm. luck over there. Sorry. All right, folks. So moving forward. As we told you before, in the news, there was a newspaper article in a few different places, including Bleacher Report and the Miami New Times, about a billboard in downtown Miami that had some artwork on it entitled R.I.P. Rifa. And if you haven't been paying attention to this show, you will know that Rifa refers to Israel Hernandez, who was the 18-year-old artist who was tased to death by the Miami Beach Police Department a couple months ago. Now, I've had the opportunity. This billboard, it was a LeBron James billboard. I think it was like an, an NBA 2014. I think it was a PlayStation billboard or something like that. But I've had the opportunity that the artist that did that tagging on the show right now, please welcome to the show, Nobody. Nobody, you there? Yeah, yeah, I'm here. What's good? So, Nobody... Now, you went out on a limb, right? So you decided to make a statement in downtown Miami uh, earlier in the week in relation to this billboard, right? What, what possessed you to tag the words R.I.P. Reefa on this billboard? And was there any specific reason why it was this particular billboard? 
right, well, let's keep it real. Allegedly, I tried to build for us for legal purposes. Right, right. Thanks <laughs> for clarification. Uh, okay, there's a beef going on between uh, Michael Jordan and challenging LeBron James, or you could take him in a one-on-one. And I'm of the, the ideology and belief, it's your time, it's your time. Not your time. Sit back and sit down with so as far as I'm concerned, right now, the here and now, LeBron James is unstoppable. When it comes to me, I'm a street artist who has dedicated himself to spreading messages of love and humanity, and I'm not someone that's destructive. But in terms of spreading my messages of love, of inspiring a future generation to be more peaceful, nobody can stop me. And in terms of Lisa, the young man who was killed doing nothing different than what I do. Writing on a wall, that's not hurt nobody. And so no one's going to stop his name from going on. For people knowing that he was somebody's son, he was loved, and he wasn't someone who deserved to have his life taken from And so as an artist, you've probably been hearing the things that they've actually been on the same message boards that this article about your alleged work was. A lot of people are saying, well, you know, if he didn't want to die, he shouldn't have tagged this. He shouldn't have tagged the letter R on the vacant McDonald's. I always like to stress to people it's a vacant McDonald's. Uh, like, what do you say to that? As an artist that does some of the same things, what do you say to that? All right, here's what I'm going to have to say, and I hope Miami listens up real clear. There's an area of Miami called Wynwood. It used to have dilapidated buildings, warehouses that were of little value, and it's an art form called street art and graffiti that has transformed Wynwood into a prosperous, investment-worthy, and financial feasible area that is growing, creating jobs and opportunity. Graffiti is the mother, the father of street art. And it's this art form which begins with tagging, which then goes to throw-ups, which leads to beautiful pieces that has led to the art that's on the beautiful walls of Wynwood. So much the way that we celebrate an athlete like Bolt, who can run faster than the speed of light, before he ran, he first had to crawl, had to walk. Before these street arts became great muralists, they tagged. And this art form is not worthy of killing someone. If someone writes on your wall, you can say they can have a conversation. You don't have to pull out an electrically charged weapon to have that conversation. He runs off and talks to him another day. He just wrote on a wall. And that common sense. I'm not going to beat a child, grab a child, slap a child upside the head. I'm certainly not going to tase him to death because they wrote on the wall. Would that be an acceptable response if I caught your child writing on my wall? To slap him upside the head? I don't think so. But why is it an acceptable response when a child, 18 years old, adult? Right on the wall. You pull out a weapon. What kind of weapon do you need to? You know what I'm saying? Because there's other crimes in our society. It's illegal to smoke someplace. Do so you pull out a taser because you catch someone smoking? A dog's running across the street without a, a leash. Do you run in the middle of traffic and risk injuring other people because that dog is breaking the law? His only. We have to become a society that places more common sense and more value on human lives than we place on buildings and property. Right. I accidentally, and God knows, I, I would not go out there and I want to, I accidentally, allegedly, did damage some cars, paint fell on them. And I'm standing up here accountable. 
I'm going to get punished. I don't know what the punishment's going to be. But somebody accidentally killed somebody's son. And I don't see nobody manning up and saying, you know what, it was wrong, I didn't mean to, but I didn't have to. T-. Nah, you got to have a multi-million dollar investigation now to find out who's going to stand up for Tase McKid, who allegedly was riding on a wall. Right, right. And so, moving forward, do you have any more art planned like this? And what do you want the listeners to know about this art specifically? I mean, I'm not, I'm not a, a, not a, I don't plan, plan things to to get attention. I'm constantly using my God-given talent, art, whether it be street art, whether it be fine art, to have a conversation with your generation, with generations yet unborn, and as tragic as what happened to Reefers and Travis as what happened to Trayvon Martin. What I'm trying to say with my art is that there's more of us, young minorities, killing each other than even these bad cops and these racist people. And so if we want them to start valuing our lives, valuing our children, we got to start valuing each other. And that's why I'm in the street writing messages of love over hate. Because every time a brother pulls out a gag and smokes another brother, whether it be Brooklyn, Oakland, or Chicago, it's letting the cops and everybody else know that we don't value our own lives, our own community. So why not go in there and open season on us? It's bigger. When I see friggin', not friggin', use the right word, friggin', Al Sharpton and Jesse Jackson get very upset over Trayvon Martin, of course we should be upset. His life is important, and Reefer's life is important. But how about the 200 Reefers in New York and Chicago that get murdered and, and nobody protests? Those lives are valuable, too. Right. That's what my street art's about. It's not about sensationalizing any one person's death and making it bigger. All of our lives are important. Right. And this nobody, he cares. So I don't have no stunt plan, but wherever I go, I'm going to make sure my footsteps and my voice speak up for something bigger than just writing on Because if all I'm doing is writing my name on the wall, then I am a vandal. I am just, you know, I'm up here trying to get people to pay attention. There's a bigger problem than the writing on the wall. Because if all you pay attention to writing on the wall, that means there's a bunch of kids like Reefer, like me, who you ain't paying attention to what their needs are. All you're paying attention is developing property. And when were they developing property? And a half a block away are kids who are growing up idly. Right. Nobody cares about them. But I do. I'm mentoring them. I'm at the hospital. So let's care a little bit more about drip paint and care about people. That's what I think. And if, is there a website that folks can visit if they want to check out some of your work and, and, and the, the type I of I did not. Dude, 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 I did not come on the radio. I'm not out here trying to, to promote my art. Mm-hmm. And it would be wrong of me to use this opportunity to do that. I Mr. That. and Mrs. Hernandez lost a son. I want people to stop and think about that for a minute. And if us as Afro-Americans and Latinos, if we're upset about what the cops did, and we should be, then start being upset about what we are doing to each other. It ain't about selling paint. Right. Well, I mean, I respect and I'll take I'll I'll take your word for that. Uh oh. Did we just hang on? Are you still there? I think we just lost him. It's fine. So we were joined by we were joined by nobody. That was that was great. That yeah, was great. no, that was beautiful and it's true. I mean and, and he's done some work, you know, in the in the Winwood area and he's, you know, been a part of Miami and New York's uh, street art scene for years. And I'm going to do a solid. I'm going to put his website up and I'm going to put the Justice for Rifa Facebook page up so people could do both things at once. I like, appreciate this man's art who took a kind of a step up to do what, to allegedly do what he He was, may have done. He may have done. And also to 
check out the Justice for Rifa website to really see what people are doing locally to fight for Justice for Rifa. So, folks, you've been listening to Let's Talk About on 880 The Biz and Let's Talk About Info. We're going to take a quick commercial break, and we'll be back with the two doctors. Back in a second. You've been listening to Let's Talk About It. Real issues, real talk for real people. We'll be right back. Take an electronic hip-hop soul adventure into 85's new post-apocalyptic project entitled The Dive. Go to 85band.com before it's too late. Welcome back to Let's Talk About It. Real issues, real talk for real people. On 880 The Biz. Folks, you've been listening to Let's Talk About on 880 The Biz and Let's Talk About Info. We just got off the phone with the artist Nobody. The me that nobody knows, that was his name. Talking about some of the alleged things related to tagging in Israel Hernandez. But I want to talk about, I want to switch gears a little bit. It's been in the newspaper. And it's funny because there's no autopsy yet that I know of. There's no toxicology report that I know of yet. And already articles are circulating in the newspapers about this mysterious thing called excited delirium and excited delirium is this thing that's allegedly causing a lot of deaths in custody and i i want to approach this with an open mind i want to know a little bit about what this excited delirium is because some people in some message boards are making some statements that seem to indicate that they think that israel hernandez was not tased to death but was in fact killed by excited delirium and like I said, I want to keep an open mind about this. So I have two people on the air. One's Dr. Deborah Mash, who's a neurology professor for the University of Miami, Miller School of Medicine. Dr. Mash, are you there? I am. Good, good evening. Good evening. Thank you for joining us. And also, I'm joined by Dr. Douglas, Douglas Zipes, a distinguished professor at Indiana University School of Medicine. Dr. Zipes, are you there? I am here. Perfect. So, Dr. Mash, let me start off with you. I, I just want to know, and as, as, and as quick a summary as possible, what is excited delirium? Excited delirium is a condition that manifests as a combination of delirium. People become very agitated, have a lot of motor, motor energy. They have anxiety. Sometimes they'll have hallucinations. Their speech is often disordered. They're disoriented. And they are frequently violent, and they have bizarre behavior. They're also insensitive to pain. And in most, but not all, they have an elevated body temperature and have been reported to have superhuman strength. And, and so, but my, here's my big question. Why, I'm, I'm seeing a lot of articles in the newspaper right now attributing a lot of deaths in custody specifically to excited delirium. Why is that? So first, let me correct you a little bit on that. It's not that there are a lot of deaths. Excited delirium syndrome the condition of excited delirium is a rare occurrence. The reason that we think it's, we're hearing more about it is because it's popularized. And the issue is whether it's a medical diagnosis or it's a political diagnosis. So the debate goes on and on. With the deployment of the taser and the push towards less lethal technologies, we got to hear more about the condition of excited delirium, but it's been around for a very, very long time. And in fact, in Miami, we were on the front end of this increased wave of people in delirious states that turned lethal 
because of our being on the front end loading of the cocaine epidemic in Dade County. And so, Dr. Zipes, now you would have a little bit of a differing opinion on this, right? Well, only slightly. I think uh, uh, Dr. Mash uh, adequately explains the uh, signs and symptoms of the syndrome. And though she didn't mention it, she's done some beautiful work on the brains of individuals uh, who apparently have died from this. Um, My position, however, is that many of the deaths associated with taser application that are uh, said to be caused by excited delirium may be caused by the direct electrical effects of the taser itself on the chest and on the heart. And while excited delirium may indeed be a real entity, and as Dr. Mash appropriately says, it it is uh, somewhat conjectural, uh, even if it were real, one has to explain that the sudden death produced by the excited delirium occurred exactly when the taser shock was delivered. And I find that coincidence a bit hard to accept when I know from uh, animal studies and some clinical data that the taser electricity can affect the heart and cause cardiac arrest. This in no way means that uh, every death associated with the taser administration is due to the taser. Uh, and certainly excited delirium may play a role in some of these instances. But in the cases that I have analyzed in depth, it's my opinion that it was due to the taser shock itself. And so I, I think this is an important question, Dr. Mash, because, for example, in, in, I, I don't think anyone can speculate yet on what happened to Israel Hernandez because we haven't gotten the toxicology and autopsy reports yet. Um, but some of those conjectures were made in the messaging boards around excited delirium. But you know, at what point do we have a conversation on, well, no, it was, the, it was the actions through use of force that caused the death versus, no, it was the excited delirium of the individual. Like, where do we make that distinction? Because there's, there's a huge difference in terms of whose fault is it in these circumstances, right? Yes, and, it, and that's, the, you know, that's where all the controversy uh, resides. So I've been looking at the condition of excited delirium since I was funded to do so by the National Institutes on Health back in the early 90s. And back then when we were working on that with Dr. Charles Wetley, who was my colleague here at the Chief uh, Deputy Chief Medical Examiner in Dade County, we did not have tasers in our community. Back then we had the condition of restraints and people suggested that people were dying in states of excited delirium because of the restraint stress. And then it changed, and we got pepper spray. And so people said, okay, well, they're dying because law enforcement is using pepper spray. And then we had the deployment of the tasers in Dade County, and people said, okay, the taser is contributing to the death in custody. And so looking at the number of cases, and again, remember, this is a rare occurrence, so we we really don't have a lot of good epidemiologic data to make, you know, strong um, 
conclusions, but based on the information that we have, what I can say is we didn't see an uptick in the numbers with the deployment of the taser. And this was something very important. In fact, my colleagues came to me and said, okay, you're tracking this in our community. What do you know? And all that I could say, because I don't know anything about the taser, I'm not an expert, and I'm not an expert in cardiology the way my colleague uh, Dr. Zipes is, who's a world-renowned cardiologist and, and electrophysiologist. So I couldn't say anything about the taser per se, but what I could say is we didn't see an increase. And if you look at the numbers of the deployments, and I, I don't know where the numbers are now, but at one point there were like over 3 million in the United States, you would think that you hit the, the taser prongs hit anybody, whether they're in an agitated state running away, they're fearful, you know, they're, they're being, you know, they're in the middle of a law inform, enforcement altercation, their nervous system, they're hyped up, okay? They may be on drugs, they may not be on drugs, they may be in a full-blown state of excited delirium, which I consider on the extreme end of the neuropsychiatric continuum, but their, neuro, their neurotransmitters, their catecholamines, the flight or fight hormones, they're up, they're up, they're turned on. So this and is the it. prongs hit them in the chest and they don't die. So, you know, we need to have more study. We need to do very careful work to really name this. And you're right, in, in terms of the, the deaths, the high-profile deaths in our community, we wait for our medical examiners to come back to us with an interpretation. And this is difficult for them because there is no anatomic cause of death. And so, Dr. Zipe, I want to bring you back to this. So, uh, I mean, this is, this is where I have a cause for concern. Now, when there's a speculation without seeing any toxicology evidence, right, of something that most folks haven't heard of, excited delirium, right? And I've seen this happen in a few different high-profile cases where once you create a public consciousness around an excuse, when things go to court, even potential jurors hear this excuse and they're more likely to believe it, whether toxicology reports prove that or not. I mean, like, there's a lot of people when I was doing the show got really angry that I was even doing it because, like, this feels like an alibi when things go to a jury. Like, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think sometimes it may be, but I, I would need to know the specific case uh, to, to really be able to state that. And in the cases that I have analyzed in depth, that indeed has been my opinion. But I, I want to make two points. Uh, uh, Dr. Mash, uh, I, I think, eloquently gives you background information. Um, Taser says there have been three million or so deployments and sudden death is very uncommon, with which I agree. However, the 3 million deployments is not the uh, important number. If someone is shot in the back or the buttocks, uh, I really don't think that that's going to have a a heart effect. What is important is how many of those 3 million deployments were chest shots over the heart, because that is the only position where the taser itself might affect the heart. So I want to make that uh, one that one point. The second point I want to make is we know for over 40 or 50 years that electricity applied to the chest in the heart area can stimulate the heart. And indeed, we as cardiologists, heart doctors, use that to resuscitate people who have a slow heart rate. We put uh, electrodes, uh, uh, 
a way to stimulate the heart on the skin and deliver electricity through the skin to the heart to resuscitate someone. But we do that at a rate of 70 or 80 beats per minute. The taser shock is 1,100 times a minute. So if it affects the heart, as we know electricity can going through the skin and chest wall, then it revs the heart rate up to extremely rapid rates and causes the cardiac arrest. How often? We don't know. I would mandate uh, record-keeping so that we know of the taser applications, how many went to the chest, what was the outcome, uh, and until we do something like that, then uh, both Dr. Mash and I are going to sit here scratching our heads uh, and, and having this discussion. Dr. Zeip, I have a, I have a question. Um, is there any physical, is there any way to know where the taser was applied after the fact? Um, I, yes, uh, because the taser leaves burn marks in the skin, uh-huh. and therefore in the cases that I've analyzed, uh, the uh, taser a dart that goes through the skin has been in the uh, cardiac, the heart vicinity. Okay, so it is clear when that when the shot has been applied. That absolutely, that, that, that is clear. What is not, every, what is not clear, as as you know, as a as a uh, looking at hearts and the, the pathology that you do, is that there is no telltale sign in the heart itself after an individual has died from uh, this cardiac arrest, and and that obviously is a problem that medical examiners have to face. And Dr. Dr. Mesh, you were going to respond. Well, you know, I was just saying that every every autopsy report has a clear description of where the taser probes landed. So we know where they are. And every record of a taser use has a complete um, uh, computer printout, which gives you the number of deployments, the number of seconds, et cetera. So you can actually reconstruct this. And uh, Bill Bozeman, Dr. Bozeman from Wake Forest, has done a lot of work on this. You know, what Dr. Zipes brings the point about, you know, what we know from our cardiology literature, I want to address it from the neurologic and the neuropsychiatric. We have 163 years ago the first descriptions of the condition of excited delirium by Dr. Luther Bell. And Bell described, uh, you know, a condition which is virtually the same as what we see today with advanced stages of mania and fever. And if you ask any psychiatrist, go into the medical school and ask any psychiatrist, he or she will tell you mania left untreated is lethal. And, you know, some of our young people are getting exposed to these new designer drugs. And I've got more files crossing my desk now than before where we don't even have evidence of drugs on board because the medical examiners and toxicologists don't know what to look for and haven't developed the assays yet. And we've got these strange, you know, delirium and sudden death cases coming on where, where the tox is negative, where there's no drugs on board because we haven't been able to find them. In the case, and, of, Luther, in the case and, of Luther Bell, these were psychiatric patients unmedicated, and there were no, no drugs on board. And, and let me uh, jump in and support 
what what Dr. Mash is saying. We know that there is a, a particular syndrome in cardiology. It's got a Japanese name. It's called Sakitsubo cardiomyopathy. It's a big name, but it simply means that extreme emotion, uh, such as might be happening in some of these instances, can cause cardiac arrest in individuals. And, uh, for example, following the tsunami in the Far East or following the earthquakes in California years ago, there's an increase in cardiac arrest, sudden deaths, uh, over those days uh, afterwards. So there clearly is support for what Dr. Mash is saying. My problem when I analyze the individual cases is that the cardiac arrest occurred precisely at the time of the taser delivery. So it's hard to say that uh, excited delirium or this Chakasubo cardiomyopathy or the underlying heart disease or the alcohol or the cocaine or whatever it was caused the cardiac arrest at the precise time of the taser shock and, and to not say, well, if the taser probes are over the heart, I know electricity can be transmitted to the heart and can run the rate up to uh, very high rates to produce cardiac arrest. It, it, it's hard to say that that's not the cause. So this has been very, very informative, and uh, I, I thank you so much. We literally have like about a minute left, and that minute left, I wanted to give you both a chance to, if there's a website that links to some of your work or or, or anything that our listeners can kind of refer to, that'd be great. Dr. Dr. Mash, you first. I, we have a website that is called exciteddelirium.org. That is something that we update here from the University of Miami School of Medicine. But also I would refer our listeners to the National Institute on Justice website on Excited Delirium, and they, up, they update that frequently. Great. And Dr. Zipes, is there a website that we could refer to or anything like that? Uh, no, I can refer to the paper that I published uh, a year ago and another one coming out in the same journal. My uh, last comments are users of TASER uh, technology simply need to be aware. Avoid the chest, avoid long trigger pulls or repeated trigger pulls, and if you've delivered a taser shock to an individual who now becomes unresponsive, think of cardiac arrest and begin CPR and resuscitative uh, maneuvers. That is my pure goal, is to educate users right. of taser technology about this, however remote, possibility of cardiac arrest. So we're going to have to leave it there, but thank you both so much for your thoughts, and let's keep talking about it, and thank you for the education. Thank you. Thank you. So, folks, we're going to take a really quick break. So, I mean, there's one thing i got to say while we're waiting for our callers to call in, and one thing that kind of raised a red flag for me. And, you know, I'm going to be very honest, folks. I, I'm a hard sell on excited delirium stuff. Not that I don't think it exists, but, you know, the, the part that I kind of come into is when you're an officer that has a firearm and then a taser right next to that firearm, right, there was already at least one case, the Oscar Grant case, where the officer that killed Oscar Grant in the Bay Area claimed that he thought he was reaching for his taser and shot the dude to death and it was caught on camera. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. But at least there's one case of an officer arguing that. Officers are taught to shoot in the body center mass. So they're taught to generally aim for the heart when they're shooting a firearm, when they're shooting a gun, when they're shooting somebody. Now, 
if that happens to be when you pull your taser, which is supposed to be non-lethal, in other words, you're shooting at someone to not kill them, you're probably instinctively going to shoot in the exact same spot. And at the very least, that should raise a red flag. At the very least, that should raise a red flag to me. I'm not a doctor, not a cardiologist, not a neurologist. If I was, you probably wouldn't be hearing me on radio right now. But that's my two cents. I'm sure excited delirium exists. At the same time, I'm even more and more positive that taser policies need to be changed, period, because something is going on. Folks, you've been listening. Let's talk about it on 8A to the biz. Let's talk about it, .info. We'll be back in a second. You've been listening to Let's Talk About It. Real issues, real talk for real people. We'll be right back. Take an electronic hip-hop soul adventure into 85's new post-apocalyptic project entitled The Dive. Go to 85band.com before it's too late. Welcome back to Let's Talk About It. Real issues, real talk for real people. On 880 The Biz. Folks, you've been listening to Let's Talk About it on 880 The Biz, and let's talk about it.info. So if you live in Miami, you will see one thing, and you'll notice one thing, that sometimes the water gets so high that it scares the ish out of you. Completely. And it can really mess up your car. And there's people that are paddle boating in Miami Beach on the street sometimes. So there's this thing called the urban development boundary, right? And and because the other thing you'll notice about Miami especially when you fly over, is you'll see swamp, 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 swamp. And then all of a sudden you'll see like a Lowe's. And I feel like there's an open question about what urban development boundaries are and how they relate to sea level rises. And here to answer that question is Laura Reynolds from the Tropical Audubon Society and Celeste Palmer also from the Tropical Audubon Society. Laura, are you on? Yeah, I'm here. Celeste, are you on? Yes, I'm right here. Great. So for those of us that know the seawater rises in Miami and often kind of have dreams of swimming in a flood one day when things really hit the fan. Um, what's this whole thing about urban development boundaries and how does that relate to sea, the, the sea level rising? Well, I thank you for doing the show. I think this is a really important issue. Um, and I, I just wanted to kind of connect a few things for folks. A lot of people think, hey, if I live on the beach, uh, that's, that's the place that's going to flood first when seas rise. And, and honestly, that's not necessarily the case. The lowest-lying areas in Miami are out west. And for at least a decade, if not more, uh, probably more, more like uh, 15 years or so, we have been actively working to try to keep the city from sprawling westward and focusing our development in places that are uh, higher and closer to public transportation so that we don't have to get in our cars every time. You know, every time we want to go somewhere, we could have have a different option other than other than increasing our carbon footprint. Um, but if you sprawl out west, you are lower and lower and lower and closer to sea level. And so the inundation from sea level rise will actually come from, you know, the Sweetwater area, if you will. If you know Miami, um, you know, the areas closest to the Everglades are the lowest lying. Mm. And so when we hold the urban development boundary, there's a reason for that. The reason for that is we, we have people at risk. 
out on the edge. Uh, you know, the other thing is we need to restore the Everglades, and it's a lot easier to do that with less pressure from development on the edge of our city. So, um, and the reason to restore the Everglades is pretty simple. We have to recharge our aquifer in order to have enough water to drink and keep the salt water out of our water supply. So the two are connected. How we develop on the land is very connected to, uh, you know, what we're doing with the water as well. Because we're so close to sea level, we have to think of, well, we can't just build a wall and keep the, keep the salt water out. We actually have to uh, push back on water with water, if you will. So by restoring the Everglades and keeping our development out of the low-lying areas, uh, we can extend the time that we have in Miami. And I say that because, you know, the IPCC just came out with a report at the end of last month, and they basically said four to six feet of inundation by 2100. And that means that a lot of places will be underwater. And we have to seriously look at those places and say, you know what, we're not going to develop there. Right. Uh, we're going to use those places to recharge our aquifer. We're going to grow food, uh, and we're going to concentrate our development in places that are way above sea level, as high as we can get. Um, and I think that's an important step for Miami to take. It seems like uh, you know elected officials are reluctant to accept the fact that seas are rising, and we actually have to make the tough decisions of no, we're not going to develop here in these areas because people will be at risk. And just real quick, just because I, I didn't do the, the voice recognition thing that I usually do as a radio show host and I failed in my duties. Was that Celeste or was that Laura? Oh, this is Laura. This is Laura Reynolds. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Sorry. You can kind of take my, my radio show host um, star of honor away. But, okay. So, <laughs> so Celeste, um, now, is, there's a problem with some of this, right? Because uh, the areas west are sort of considered the suburbs that folks wanted to move out to for so long, right? So... Does that kind of create like a little bit of a tension in terms of the way that people wanted to build Miami out and the real realities that we were forced to deal with? Well, that's an interesting question. This is Celeste. And uh, you actually see two uh, trends. Uh, actually, the younger people, people from my generation, you see them that they want to live more in areas that are walkable, that are uh, thriving with nightlife and, you know, where you can just jump on the metro rail and go anywhere. Areas like Brickell are exploding, um, areas like South Miami. So you actually see that younger people are not so interested in the whole suburban life and that that's more of an older mentality. So it's it's an interesting change and it's actually kind of a, a good thing that's going on in Miami right now. There are a lot of groups working around trying to make Miami more vibrant and trying to make it more livable and more of a community, if you will. And the suburban life doesn't really allow you to do that because you're so far away from everything that you're escaping the craze of the city just so that you can be at peace only to realize that then you just have to hop on your car to go absolutely everywhere because you only have your house where you live and you don't have your, your school close by or you don't have your job close by. And, you know, that's not that doesn't add up to good quality of life that you were hoping to have. That only takes it to you being stressed and being stuck, stuck in this horrible traffic because of this sprawl pattern that we've created. Of course, but, but the reality is Miami is an expensive city to live in. And for many families and people who have kids or just need a little bit more space or want a little bit more space, the, the fact is some of the most affordable real estate 
in Miami is on the edge, you know, is is further south or further west, closer to the Everglades. There's homes, brand new homes and developments that are very affordable or, or at least comparatively much more affordable than some of the more um, uh, urban areas that um, that you were mentioning, you know, like Brickell and, um, you know, downtown and midtown and, and the beach. And so for families who, who do want a little bit more space, but there is still a lot of pressure um, and demand for more affordable housing. And so, you know, that's a that's a really good point that you bring up. This is Laura. Uh, I think that part of the problem that we have is we make it a lot cheaper for developers to mm-hmm. actually purchase a piece of farmland and develop a large development out on the edge. It's cheaper for them, and they can make there's more of a profit margin than if you decided to buy up property within the urban development boundary and put together something and re you know retrofit it or uh, redevelop it. It's actually more expensive and there's less of a profit margin. So, I mean, the answer to that is within our development code, we have to make it more affordable for developers to work on those kinds of projects than what we currently have, which is it's still cheaper to buy a piece of farmland and and build a development on it. Uh, so you're pointing out exactly the problem that we have with making it more attractive uh, to reinvest in the, the the middle of our city. So I think this is kind of interesting because in some ways we're talking about how do we make the city of Miami itself more livable in ways in which more folks are going to want to stay close to the city center and, and, and farther away from places like the Everglades, right? Um, and, and and on the other side is how do we protect the Everglades itself as what you would call an aquifer, something that protects the city from flooding, right, um, in, in some ways. So what are some basic steps that people that are listening that like probably this is the first time they've heard of of an urban development boundary what are some basic steps people can take right now if they want to get involved in trying to protect both things at one time you know that's that's a good question um there are some upcoming votes that are happening i think the first thing is be civically engaged you know read the paper, find out what's going on, and make sure that the people we're electing into office actually are thinking about climate change and sea level rise and environmental issues that affect us, including our water supply. Uh, Because if we're not thinking about those things, we could end up paying 10 times more for water, uh, for example, if we had to use reverse osmosis. Um, Or even access to local food. If we continue to sprawl west, the 57,000 acres that we have to grow food on will disappear and will become paved over and will become homes, which doesn't necessarily serve us uh, in the way that we might need. Um, and so the, the elected officials that are thinking about these things really should remain in office. And people should run that understand these issues. And so I think we have to hold our elected officials accountable. That's the first thing. The second thing is realizing that people are still... Um, putting forward applications to move the urban development boundary, which is a zoning change. Um, And there are some upcoming dates um, where that's happening. Uh, I know October 21st is the next time the county will look at uh, an application. The the planning advisory board meets on that day at 2 o'clock in the county commission chambers. And we're actually looking for people to come out and voice their opinion on this issue and let the county commission know that, um, you know, this is a bad thing for Miami. We want to invest our tax dollars within the core of the city 
and have more access to public transportation. And in order to do that, we have to increase density uh, and have enough of our tax dollars uh, concentrated in the core of the city. We can't continue to sprawl west and put people in harm's way from sea level rise. And I wanted to add something to that and link it back to what we're talking about. Uh, People wanted more room, and so it's more affordable to go out west. Um, I actually went to the county commission just recently when we were talking about our comprehensive development master plan. And I always put myself in the shoes of somebody that's really struggling to make it in this country because I'm not from here. I got here like 11 years ago. And so for me, I'm still looking for that American dream of owning my own house. And so what worse than you being able to buy your house, you buy it out west, and then you end up having to pay so much money because a hurricane came by and you got flooded. I mean, people don't realize that, but when you buy a house out west, you are facing that risk constantly. So you're kind of betting against your own future, and people don't really know that. But the commissioners know that they're not supposed to be facilitating building out west because that's exactly what would happen. And so it's it's kind of sad that, you know, our people, the people that are supposed to be looking out for our best interests are sort of like putting like a blind eye or sticking their heads in the sand and being like, well, you know, but it's, it is much cheaper. It's cheaper housing, yes, but in the long run, how cheap will that be if I have to rebuild my entire house or if I have to abandon it because the hurricane just flooded it completely? And uh, when you think about it, people don't really know this either, that wetlands are actually extremely important in, in protecting us from floods. One acre of wetland can hold up to 1.5 million waters, uh, gallons of flood waters. So those are things that the regular citizen could just sort of keep in their, in their memory. And when you go visit your commissioner, that's the only thing that you need to say. Just say what you think about your own future, because the commissioners really like to hear about their own constituents. And so that would be the first advice that I would give people. Just make sure that you know who's representing you and make sure that you reach out to that person and tell them what you think about this issue because that's all they really care about, just being for their right. own constituents. That makes a big difference. Right. And, and I, I tell people this over and over again because so few people get involved in the stuff related to the county commission here. There's usually like two people at these meetings. So if you could bring 100 people to a meeting, you could actually have a huge amount of difference um, on issues like this. Now, real quick, we have like literally 30 seconds left or something like that. Um, is there a website that we can visit if we need more information? Absolutely. Um, we actually have uh, a service where you can sign up for an e-newsletter, and that's on our homepage at www.tropicalautobahn.org. Great, great. Thank you so much for talking to Laura Reynolds and Celeste Palma, both from the Tropical Audubon Society. Thank you both so much for your thoughts, and let's keep talking about it. Thank you. Thank you. That was great. It is. And, you know, another thing that we didn't really talk about, but that's important when talking about the uh, the urban development boundaries, the, the pressure that it puts on fire response, on hospitals, on electricity, and water out there. It, it really does mess with the city on a lot of levels. That's true. That's very true. So, people, a few final words. What people may not know is that we've been on 880 The Biz for three years now, a little bit over three years. And got an announcement to make. So this will very likely be our last broadcast on 880 The Biz on 880 AM. And we would like to really thank 880 AM for giving us the opportunity to be on the, sh- on the air for three years here. 
we're going to take some time and we, you know, we're really committed to real talk. We're really committed to the art of real talk. We're really committed to making sure that real people understand the real issues and are able to talk about the real issues from their perspective. And over the next week or so, you're going to hear a few messages from us. You're going to get a few comments from us about what our next steps are because we really are committed to making the art of real talk bigger and better in the, in the coming months. And so our big announcement is this is probably going to be our last broadcast on 880 The Biz on 880 AM. And we really want you to visit our website at letstalkaboutit.info. That's www.letstalkaboutit.info. We're still going to be putting our articles out. We're still going to be putting some of our old episodes out. We're still going to be blogging as much as we can. And we are going to make sure that we let you know by the end of the week what our next steps are because we are going to try our very hardest to make sure that Real Talk is bigger and better every day. So for that being said, you've been listening. Let's talk about on 880 The Biz and Let's And I'm going to end the show with one of my favorite songs, Wake Up Everybody. And we'll see you soon. Peace. Wake up everybody, no more sleeping in bed. No more backward thinking, time for thinking ahead. The world has changed so very much from what it used to be. There is so much hatred, war and poverty.